Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Joining us, we are once again back in person and this time with a local author and very much a local story as well. Who have we been reading this month, Arson? Erica Krauss, and it's her memoir, Tell Me Everything, in which she was uh, involved or an investigator in the CU rape case. So um, there's a lot of different things going on in this book, but it's it's her story and it's a, really a memoir. And there are two major stories going on here, which we're going to delve into, but delighted to have Erica join us in the studio. Hello, Erica. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Arson and Maeve. I'm happy to be here. Well, as Arson mentioned, what the, the story is about, you know, just to let listeners know, we are going to be talking about sexual assault and also child sex abuse, because that's sort of the second story that's woven in here. But this really is a memoir. And Erica, you have written fiction in the past. Why did you want to jump genres, as it were, and, and get into this type of uh, writing? I actually didn't want to. <laughs> I was I was really hesitant to write a memoir because it's just not uh, something that I, I, I didn't feel like my story was something that I was going to share or that it was actually even really honestly important enough to share. But um, but I did, over time, notice that the case that I worked on, this really important historical Title IX sexual assault case, the first ever in history, was never really highlighted um, in story form before. And I, I kind of waited and waited. I thought someone would write a book about this. And, and people did sort of, you know, they mentioned it here or they mentioned it there or it was kind of a side plot to some other stories. But um, I really just wanted to tell the story of this incredible and ridiculous case. So had you thought about putting it into your fiction? Had you played with that at all? I mean, this this very intense experience. And since you had written fiction and published fiction, um, I would I would wonder I would think that might be a first instinct. Had that been an instinct or and what happened with that or why go memoir? Well, I tried, honestly. And um, it the case was was ludicrous. There were so many weird things that happened that that really defied reality. And every time I tried to put it in a fictional format, I just realized no one's going to believe this. No one's going to believe this unless it's verifiable and true. And I say it's true because otherwise, otherwise they would just say this this wouldn't happen. This is this would never ever uh, take place. So that's why I had to sort of go real. Well, you know, your fiction writing ability, I think comes into the memoir. You do a beautiful job. There's very lyrical passages at times. It's a very tough subject, but you handle it very well, I believe. And so I want to give the reader, the listeners, a chance to hear you read. It's a very inviting book. I know Maeve giving the warning, and it's true. There is a lot of tough things in here. But uh, for a tough book, it was actually a smooth and easy read, if one can say such a thing. Oh, thank you. I tried to make it easier for people. I, I tried to make the book as safe as possible to read, but it's, uh, again, it's a tough subject. I wanted anyone to read it regardless of their experiences. So that was a big concern for me, and I, I tried. <laughs> so All right, so yeah, take, take read in. a passage for us. Okay, this is the second section of the book, and it is where, um, uh, where I first get the job. I, when I began uh, as a on this case, I really I was a rookie private. I I, I really didn't know what I was doing, and um, this is how I got the job as a private investigator in the first place. <clears throat> in the fall of two thousand two, 
I was living in the front range foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains, in a small city that boasted a university and a swarm of tech startups. I met an attorney at a bookstore there because we were both reaching for the same Paul Oster novel. We withdrew, laughed, chatted briefly about the, the author and books, and then he started telling me about his life. He wasn't complaining, just reporting. He said, I'm a partner in the kind of law firm I've always dreamed of, but I'm beginning to hate it. The man looked like a lawyer. He was about 20 years older than me, my height, in a cornflower blue button-down shirt that matched his eyes so exactly he must have bought it for that purpose. But his hunched shoulders betrayed misery, and his arms flapped at his sides like he had no use for them anymore but didn't know how to shed them. The man said, or maybe I'm just sick of it, my job, my life. I don't know what I'm if what I'm doing has any meaning anymore. I'm thinking about leaving my law firm, maybe even leaving the practice of law altogether. Then he stopped, shocked. Wait, he said. What? I've never told anybody this stuff, he said. It's okay, he said. But he scanned the stacks, unable to meet my gaze, and his voice cracked. He said, what did you do? What's happening? I said, don't worry. People tell me secrets all the time. I don't. I don't even know who you are. He jabbed an index finger in the air between us. He said, my partners can't know. This is confidential stuff. I said, I, I won't tell anyone. He still looked upset, so I said, it's not you. It's just my face. It does that. People tell me things. I'm sorry. People tell you things like that? The man's expression slowly changed as he regarded me, as if I had suddenly gone on clearance. Then he said, come work for me. What? I said. I'm offering you a job. He now looked relaxed, expansive. He leaned back against the books in the B section. What kind of job? I asked. I was afraid he was about to say something dirty. But instead he said, you can investigate my lawsuits for me. P.I. work. Talk to witnesses. Get them to open up. The idea was amazing, getting paid money for what usually ended up happening anyway. The man told me his name, Grayson. He said, if you got that stuff out of me, you can get anything out of anyone. That's author Erica Krauss reading from her book, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation. And that was you encountering this attorney in the bookstore and what led to you becoming a private investigator. And this case that we have been referring to is this monumental case where CU students who were footballers on the team were uh, accused of rape. And there was a massive legal case around that. But it led ultimately to a landmark civil rights case, Title IX, um, against the university. And you were the private investigator in there. So for people who are listening who maybe have never heard that story or there are people listening who remember it very well, they're going to think, hang on, those names are different from the names that I remember when the case was reported because you've used different names throughout. Why did you do that? Yeah, I even disguised the university, which I don't name, although it's this university near the Flatirons <laughs> with a Division One A football team. Um, well, that eliminates um, Naropa. Right, exactly. Um, so I, you know, I changed everybody's names, even though, you know, you could Google around and find some of these names. But um, when I was a private investigator, the way I found people was through a name. I would start with one name and one name would inevitably lead to five or 10 more names just through association. That's how we know each other's through association with other people. And um, while some of the people involved with the case wanted to come forward with their true names, a lot of people did not. Most people did not. So I, I wanted to um, do my own due diligence as far as trying to keep privacy to the extent that I could for people who wanted their privacy by just not putting those pieces together on the page. 
it's a, there's a difference between me doing it on the page and someone else doing it in their home and Googling around. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting for me reading it because I've been in Boulder for this whole time. So I knew who these characters were. And like, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into too many details, but like a public car- person, like uh, the head of the, the coach of the CU team. So, you, you you know, you've decided not to use his real name. And I mean, how much discussion was there around this? And because and, I'll be honest, it was the one thing in the book that threw me a little. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like I really was on board and I, you know, I really, you know, we'll get into this later, how you weave the three elements of this book together so wonderfully. But I was thrown a little bit as mm-hmm. somebody who knew the case right. <laughs> to, to to have to sub in these names. So right. what what kind of discussions were there? Was it discussions with your editors, with the lawyers, like, or, or was it really a personal thing that you had to decide upon? Yeah, I, I had uh, three lawyers read this book. <laughs> it was it was a lot of, of law talk, honestly. Um, I had two lawyers look at it before the uh, before I sent it to my editor and then through the process of editing it we um, we had a legal read so that and that was extensive that took a place over um, five five really intensive months but that took place over the course of a year so we discussed and debated <laughs> everything about the names and identities and disguises and I agree it is a little off-putting if you're, you're like wait a second I know this person and it's X and I you know I want the name and honestly as a whistleblower type of person I just really do want to call out all the people but again through association I you can inadvertently hurt someone who who's innocent and does not want their name revealed. Mm-hmm. Well, as we said at the beginning, this is really two stories woven together. One is this case that we're talking about here that you worked on as a private investigator. But the other is your own very personal story of your own experience of mm-hmm. abuse as a child. Why did you want to have the two stories being told at the same time? I really was hesitant to tell my own story again, um, just because it's not really in my nature. I have had friends for decades and I've never talked about this stuff with them. Uh, However, I, you know, I was just writing about this case and all these women who were so brave and they came forward with their stories to great peril, personal safety, uh, dangers and risks to their, their own privacy, to their, again, their futures, their education was on the line, their scholarships um, in some cases, their jobs. And they took all these risks to tell their stories and I thought okay I'm going to write about them but I'm not going to have the courage to talk about me and what happened to me and why this is personal to me because it was very very personal to me and I knew also as a fiction writer that um, that would be the question I would ask why this narrator why why is this person telling the story and not someone else it has to be there has to be a reason why you believe in them and you trust them and why you you follow them through the story and one reason is that this was intensely personal to me. It was uh, whether we won or lost this case was for me a matter of uh, whether I could believe in the world or not. So, well, you started. Um, what happens during the investigation of the case is you things start happening with your mother, who mm-hmm. you had a very difficult relationship. And can you talk about that and the relationship? Maybe your need to have some sort of something with your mother b- because mm-hmm. of the case, or somehow that was triggering something to you you know that because that that to me was one of the most interesting dynamics in the story it seemed like as you're investigating this case it's pushing your personal life and your your personal history 
in a direction that maybe it wouldn't have gone if you've never had this case. Right. I, as I worked on the case, I kept seeing how denial really messed up uh, justice. <laughs> you know, it, like, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to believe these things. So, so okay, you know, people decided these women must be lying, these men must be telling the, tr telling the truth, and, um, and women's rights were kind of getting trampled on. And as I kept working and working on that case, uh, the denial that had really sort of encompassed my own childhood became very in my face, and I, I really felt a need to sort of confront it and the way I, I felt a need to do that was with my mother, I, and I tried, and, um, you know, I didn't succeed. I mean, that was a huge parallel with the two stories that jumped out for me. The trauma that was being willfully ignored and the attempt to suppress it. So when you went to your mother to say what was happening and her reaction to that was to almost deny it or to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And then you were at the same time telling the story of being a private investigator, finding out that these women had been raped. They were going to the authorities, the university, mm -hmm. and they were also having their trauma denied too. And the way you wove both of those parallel stories, and, and I think you used the term cultural violence mm -hmm in the book around what was really happening at the university. And I think we're more comfortable with that kind of language. We talk about rape culture now more. That wasn't the vocabulary that was being used at the time this case was being discussed. But that culture of violence that you also experienced as a child when you were experiencing abuse and you do what you are being told to do as a child, which is go tell someone, an adult that you trust mm -hmm. and for them to participate in the violence by shutting it down and denying it. I mean, to me, that was just devastating. I was devastated on your behalf when I was reading that. I thought you tackled that so powerfully in the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I always think that everything starts in the family, right? So um, d dynamics that happen in a small group are the same dynamics that happen in the large group. And in a university, you've got people who are, they're new adults, but still parts of them are kids. And um, they're, they do rely on the university as a parental figure. And when they something happens and they need help, they need to be able to go to the university. But in this case, uh, the university was really protecting itself over over the kid. And um, and that's how I felt when I was growing up in, in my own family. So I, I could see, I, I, in some ways, I, I felt like I was the best person in the world for this case and also the worst because I could, I really understood this dynamic, at, which was why I was good for the case. But um, why I was bad for the case is that I had long ago sort of accepted that dynamic. It felt normal to me to, for for victims to be shut down. It felt really normal to me to, um, to be cast out and to... Um, on, on the basis of your victimhood, really. So that made me in some ways bad for the case. And I had to combat that the whole time. So you were kind of a, a background investigator. Mm -hmm. You know, you weren't talking to the people bringing the civil suit directly. Mm -hmm. And what I what another piece, you know, we talk about weaving these two main things. You weave so many things, actually, in this book. What I thought was your investigation of what it means to be a private eye. Like you, 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 you were an instrumental in helping develop leads and and avenues to pursue in this case. But in the end, it doesn't seem like you look at being a private eye as heroic because there's also this kind of moral thing. Like people do talk to you, and maybe they say more than is good for them. Mm -hmm. So talk about that that conflict that maybe you had, or I don't know if you had a conflict, but 
what it means to be a private eye and what it means when you're like, ah, I got this great information. Oh, this is really going to change this person's life. Right, right. Uh, the PI trade has never been viewed as very classy. <laughs> it's <laughs> never been like, you know, white tablecloth kind of trade. Um, and in some ways, mine was, you know, a little better because I, I was investigating a lawsuit instead of, you know, hiding behind buildings and trying to snap pictures of cheating spouses, right? So it was a little different. But um, there was this feeling of, of playing dirty, you know, like you're you're loosening people up with alcohol and free food and tell me more and I'm paying so much attention to you. And then uh, and they'll tell you more than they want to tell you. And then um, and then you have to, you know, be in that position of being like, well, I know I know they don't really want this to go further, but the cat's out of the bag now. And that's what I was paid to do. I was paid to get information and hand it over to the lawyers. So it, it was morally dicey. And I had a lot of moral quandaries about it invading people's privacy and about um and also just you know trying to persuade people to do something they might not have wanted to do for people who were listening who are wondering oh i had no idea attorneys used private investigators this all sounds like a whole other branch here i mean for it to end up say in a legal case those people who are telling you the stories they would then have to be deposed right i mean it's just part of the process you're not going gotcha now you got to end up in court. I mean, how what what's the legalities of that, and how private investigations and the kind of conversations you were saying about plying people with alcohol? I mean, what you were doing was say maybe meeting someone in a bar, maybe right. let's have a beer in a, in a casual situation. I'll buy you a burger, and then you have these conversations. But then, how does that then end up as part of the case? What are the the intervening steps? Well, uh, yeah. So again, you're right. You know, just telling me something doesn't mean that I can, I'm going to testify in court and say they said this, and they say no, I didn't say that, and it's going even mean anything right um so from from there you have you know you you sift through the information uh, actually i would usually just dump all the information on the attorneys and they'd say wow okay I, we can use this this and this and they'd come back to me and say okay um talk to them again and try and get them interested in being involved you know so there's a lot of persuasion involved in in the job as well you know i'd talk about how important the case was and how what they knew and what they had experienced could possibly change things and um so it it, it, and then from there you have to persuade them to possibly sign an affidavit and or you know appear in court and and then it goes from there but you can't really just you know you you don't like drag them in kicking and screaming (laughs) you know you have to really sort of we have you know, to build relationships with yeah. them because you had to gain their trust. Absolutely. Yeah. Trust is a big a big thing, which is why I, I felt really conflicted in the times when I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm betraying their trust. That's author Erica Krause speaking about her new book, which is a memoir. It's called Tell Me Everything, the Story of a Private Investigation. She herself was a private investigator around a very high profile case, a rape case against a CU that resulted in landmark uh, civil rights case Title IX and um, she chronicles all of this in her book which we have been reading as part of the Radio Book Club a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and as always my co-host Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. One of the parallels talking about trust and getting people to trust you Mm -hmm. was you also talk about starting a relationship, a personal relationship romantic relationship during this time and your issues around trust. And that's a parallel. And mm-hmm. 
maybe you can talk about that because I think that was very interesting. Like you're, you you're you're using your you're trying to get people's trust, and then sometimes you you talk about a moral quandary, and some of that moral quandary is, am I manipulating them? But at the same time, you're trying to start a relationship which has to be built on trust. Right. Yeah. And uh, luckily, my partner, who who I'm now married to, um, he you know he has an incredibly strong moral code, and he's he has integrity out of every pore. So um, he became a, a real sounding board for me. And sometimes I'd go a little too far, and he'd he'd step in and say, "Wait a second, what are you what are you doing?" <laughs> And I'd have to sort of look at myself, which was really great to have a partner who's also that kind of a mirror for you, who can give you what you need. But it, our relationship did really um, begin around the time of the case, and it it it, it really fit. Um, it was kind of narrative gold because I, you know, it, the timeline fit, and I could use it perfectly for the case. And he and he was okay with it. I don't, he's a very private person and shy, but um, but I talked him into it. <laughs> One person who came to trust you as a PI was this woman who was kind of was supplying prostitutes, basically, for these parties that mm-hmm. the football uh, players would go to and the recruits would go to. And that seemed to be where the moral quandary came in. And, and you talked about that quite a bit in the book. Can you give us because that seemed like quite a character, that woman, if you could give mm-hmm. us a little bit about you know what was happening there and what your feelings were around that. Yeah, I, I, her name in the book is Daisy, and I have a lot of respect for her. She, she came forward to the probably the most peril of anyone. She was easily easily identifiable by many people in the street. Her picture had been in the paper, and people would um, they'd throw hot drinks at her or giant supersized you know icy drinks at her um, because she was going against the football team and making the football team look bad just by telling the truth about being hired to provide sex workers for recruits. And um, so, but she still was a supporter of the case of, she's a very, very staunch feminist, a believer in women's rights and a believer in women's safety. And, um, but I I did feel really um, scared for her. And I wondered if getting her involved in this case was was gonna help her and her family um, because it was actually putting her in, in, in peril for safety and um her kid also was becoming was getting harassed in school as well i mean you talked there about that she was being assaulted on the you know having things thrown at her because she had been publicly identified and and people were upset that she was speaking out against the football team um and this goes to this broader issue we talked about it you you refer to a culture of violence Mm -hmm. you know where the the university itself were protecting the football program and the football players but there was also this broader culture where people just didn't want to speak out against the team and this even extended beyond the university Mm -hmm. and so it shows you how brave these women were not the women themselves who had been raped who came forward but also these other people in the community to step into that space to speak out against this massive institution I mean, talk about just some of those dynamics that were at play. I think football is a religion in this country, and it, and I, I think um, with the problems in the NFL, the sexual harassment problems that you'll see women who were working for the NFL, they'll say this is this is. I remember one woman said, uh, "This is a religion, but this isn't my God." And I, I kind of felt the same way. I was like, "Oh, this definitely is." 
I recognize that this for people is very, very important. It gets them through the week sometimes. It is something they have faith in, something they feel is bigger than themselves. Um, there's power, there's military dynamics, there's um, commerce, <laughs> there's a winner and a clear loser. And, you know, it's, um, it's satisfying to many, many people and they will do a lot to protect it. And I think it was very difficult for people to see the heroes of this sport as villains for um, other for you know in women's particular women's lives, and so that was um, getting kind of busting through that image, the football image, um, to you know to say no, this isn't all nobility. There's you know this is a very very violent sport that actually hurts the people who play it, you know, that most of those players have end up with severe brain damage. And um, if they didn't even come into school with it, right? So, um, so there's, there's a lot of, lot of things at play, but the, that overriding, you know, football, rah, 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 spirit was very hard to break through. At, um, people just refused. So what ultimately did result from the case. I mean, there was the legal decision that found the university guilty of violation of Title Nine, these federal protections. But did it change anything more broadly, given, you know, the culture, not just at the university, but, you know, our societal attitudes towards these football players? Absolutely. It changed a lot, actually. Uh, the NCAA instituted new rules around recruiting to keep people safer. Um, and also, it, this case set a precedent, a legal precedent, that um, if if a woman or a man or anybody or you know any any gender was um, was sexually assaulted by a college football player, or college college athlete, actually any college athlete, um, that the school would have to bear some responsibility under Title IX. That never happened before. Before that, it was just a criminal affair, and criminal cases are decided by the DA's office. And then, um, and some DAs just are football fans and decide not to, not to prosecute. Right. So, um, so now it became a civil rights issue. It is a, it's a Title IX. Uh, violation. So that encouraged a lot more people to come forward and enabled many, many more cases. And also it created this uh, position that you'll see now in universities of Title IX coordinator. Uh, that didn't, that position really wasn't around very much before then. But now um, universities are more proactive in making sure that uh, these violations do not uh, to not progress to, you know, progress further than they already did. And um, protecting people's rights. So you were talking about the DAs and some of them being football fans. And, and that definitely happened here. You had you talk repeatedly about how the DA in Boulder didn't want to do anything, it seemed like. And I wondered, as I read this, if, if they had actually just done their job and handled this as a criminal complaint, that these broader implications might not have ever come to bear. I didn't understand why the case wasn't a criminal case to start. Um, the reasons seemed to shift over time, and I, I wrote about them in the book. Um, some of the 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 reasons given didn't make any sense to me um, as just a as a regular person. But in some ways, it's it's good because it turned this case into a large affair that was covered nationally, and people had to actually look at. What is the culture at at a Division One A school? Are are women safe? And is this a violation of 
their civil rights if they're not. And so in some ways, I'm kind of grateful for any prosecutorial timidity um, <laughs> because it allowed for greater change to take place. Yeah, and sweeping it under the rug, they caused a much bigger dust storm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, Erica Krauss has been our guest at the Radio Book Club. Her book, Tell Me Everything, the Story of a Private Investigation. And Erica, I do want to let listeners know there are resources mentioned in the book and also at your website for survivors of sexual violence. There are a lot of resources out there and we would encourage people to find them in the book or at your website, com. That's K-R-O-U-S-E. And it's Erica with a K slash resources, lots of resources there. But Erica, thank you very much for being our guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you. We're going to have further conversation on the podcast only edition after hours at the Radio Book Club. So tune in more for that. We're going to dig into more about what it means to be a private eye. It's not Magnum. It's not the Rockford Files. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. So subscribe to the podcast for more conversation with Erica Krauss. But as we always do at the end of each episode, we announce what we are inviting listeners to read along with us for the next month. So who are we asking people to to read with us for this month, Arson? The author is Nina Shope and the book is Asylum. And it's a novel. It's a historical novel set in 19th century France. And the main characters are a French neurologist who is studying hysteria in woman, women. And it's a hysteric, as they said back then, uh, named Augustine. And kind of the relationship between them and a, a third a third person enters in. And so it's going to be a big departure from this. But I think it's, it's the type of thing. We've read some historical novels that have dealt with women's issues in the last year. And I think this will fit in nicely. Well, do find out more information about that at news.kgnu.org and tune in to KGNU on the 4th Thursday in July, 9am for that conversation. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. For the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, my co-host. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.